am your host, Eli. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Groundbreaking Podcast. Be sure to share this podcast with your network and smash that subscribe button and leave an awesome comment down below. John Bostock has consistently succeeded at the toughest challenges presented by companies, both large and small. Over the course of nearly a decade at GE, John reinvented the company's appliance division. In 2016, John joined Big Ass Fans. He focused on improving the customer experience, and then he shepherded a sale that valued the company at $500 million. Following the sale, John sought a new challenge and joined with Alex Reed to found Truman's. Truman's is a household cleaning products business designed for today's consumer with an emphasis on simplicity, convenience and sustainability. I love the honesty and passion and I know you will enjoy this episode. Hi Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me this week. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, It's incredibly cool to connect with you and really appreciate uh, the support for what we're doing and uh, just reaching out genuinely to say hello. It's, it's been awesome to get to know you. So I want to start off with some lightning round questions so my audience can get to know you. Great. Sounds awesome. What is one thing on your bucket list? You know, I have spent a lot of time in my career visiting parts of the world. And one of my favorite parts of the world is uh, China. My kids, would love to go. And one of my bucket list items is taking them there. Um, I've got an eight-year-old and a four-year-old and uh, the eight-year-old talks all the time about his interest in, in visiting China and, and seeing what it's like. And I'm getting to, to see for himself uh, some of the things that I've been able to see. And, and clearly my four-year-old isn't old enough to know uh, what that experience would be like, but it's certainly something that I want to share with them. And I have so much respect uh, for that part of the world and and would love for them to to see and experience the history of it. What is one brand you could not live without it, but you can't choose your own brand? (laughs) Um, That's pretty funny. Uh, You know, sadly, I would say Apple. And the reason why I say sadly is because on one hand, it's phenomenal in that we're always connected. And you think about the speed of business today and how important it is to be connected. Uh, Apple allows for that and allows for it in a very simple and elegant way. Um, Why I say unfortunately is obviously we're always connected and it means that we have less downtime in our lives. But I can tell you doing what I'm doing and uh, knowing that speed is so important in everything we do, I, I really think that Apple is is a product and, and platform that allows for the connectivity that means most, whether it's FaceTiming with my kids and family when I'm traveling or uh, just being productive when I'm on the go. So it's, it's something that just in all facets of my life, it, it, it really works well. What is something we could not find about you online? You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I, there, there are two things I think that would surprise people. I'll, I'll get into the second more. The first is, love to paint. I love to create abstract art and, and there's very little online about that. The second is a, a hobby that I, I've developed and 
um, have really turned it into an annual thing. Uh, it's, it's a love for cooking. And what I do each year is I set out to develop a new skill. And so, for example, last year, um, I wanted to learn how to smoke uh, foods. Uh, and then this year, I'm learning the art of sous vide. And so um, it's really something that allows me to break outside of the, the day-to-day, get creative with food, challenge myself, to uh, think and do different things. And so um, those are things I love. Uh, and, and, I, and I think not many people would realize that uh, for as busy as, as I am and for all the things I get involved in, those are activities that I just absolutely love to do. And, and, and I love you know, cooking specifically for, for my family. They, um, we have a lot of fun with it and we, we try to do it together a lot, which is great. Um, but it, 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 it's something that's, that's, I just love to do. What's your favorite food? Oh, that's a, that's a challenge. You know, I, if, if I had to pick one, um, I, there's a smoked salmon I learned how to make, and it's not smoked in the way that you would, you would think of a long process. It's where you smoke it for a brief period of time and then cook it on high heat in a smoker. Um, and I, I absolutely love it. It's um, right now, it's one of my favorite things, but it changes quite a bit. You know, I, I learned how to smoke Brussels sprouts during that, that period where I was learning how to do things. And, you know, there was a period where I'd probably tell you smoked Brussels sprouts was by far in a way my, my favorite thing. And it really changes because of the, the different things that I'm pushing myself to do and, and try. I love salmon. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a really great protein and, and uh, it's, it, I, I think it's fantastic. Awesome. Thanks, Jonathan. So what were you like as a kid? What did you enjoy doing? You know, I was, I would say, an average kid. Uh, you know, I, as I think back, I, I don't really think of like doing anything that was uh, setting any world records or anything like that. But one thing that my grandfather taught me at a very young age was if, if I wanted something, I, I had to go out and earn it. And so what I did as a kid a lot was figure out how I could earn the things I wanted. And one of the, the very funny things for me as I look back on is my family members told me that they would buy art if, if I were to create art for their walls. And so I would spend countless hours drawing pictures, painting, and then selling it to my family members. And um, it was, it was kind of, it's, it's funny to think back because, you know, there was a, a phase where I was hand drawing houses and then hand drawing cartoons and, um, and, and selling them for 25 cents and 50 cents a piece. But, um, you know, it was, it, that was kind of the definition, right? I wasn't, I wasn't setting world records for speed or, jumping or, you know, these crazy things that some kids are accomplishing now and, and, and before. Um, I was like focused on, you know, hey, my grandfather told me if I wanted that bike, I had to figure out a way to earn it. And uh, I'm going to figure out the most creative thing that I can do to, to, to do. And, and so um, that's kind of what I was like, you know, I was, I was into math. Um, I played sports. Um, you know, just, uh, I would say a normal kid. I grew up in a, in a college town in, in Amherst, Massachusetts, um, had a great, uh, upbringing and a, a, you know, very, very, uh, diverse, uh, community. And it, it was, it was a great, great, great childhood. 
You started your career at General Electric. Can you tell me more about the journey to leading to that? Yeah, you know, um, it was really unexpected. I think that when you think about a company like like GE, um, General Electric, you think of a very big, large company that looks the same, acts the same, and you typically think of someone who's had a very traditional uh, path in their career. I'm certainly an outlier when you think about people who went into GE. I started uh, out as a wannabe entrepreneur. I think the way I was raised, and you asked me what I was like as a child and being told you have to work hard uh, and you have to go out and, and make money if you want to have things like a bike. And um, those skills obviously transform into, in my opinion, being an entrepreneur because you seek ways to create value um, outside of, of the tradition. And so for me, I, I graduated from undergrad and, and, and wanted to start my own company and kind of failed miserably and, and went back to business school. While I was at business school, I continued to try to, to do things uh, in a very disruptive way and, and just had trouble getting companies off the ground. And while I was actually pitching business plans and business plan competitions, I met an officer at the General Electric Company and she inspired me to consider going to GE. And what she told me is, look, we need people who think in different ways. And this concept of diversity of thought is one that is valued within GE. And, and someone who has looked at the world in a different way, who thinks entrepreneurially, who wants to be an entrepreneur, they'll do well. And, and I took a leap and I joined the company um, right out of business school. And I went to a business school that wasn't necessarily one that uh, is a feeder to GE. Uh, again, being an outlier, uh, not only from a background perspective, but from an educational perspective as well, and went into the company and just fell in love with the, the, the idea of growing with a big company. I joined in an executive program and got to see different businesses, including GE Plastics, GE Water, GE Appliances, and ultimately GE Corporate based in New York, and just had a fantastic uh, career with them, learned a lot, got to see a lot of very, very unique and complex businesses, and I think it was something that the learning over the course of that time motivated, motivated me to, to stay with the company. And the company at the same point was going through massive transformation and we dealt with a macroeconomic crisis that the world dealt with, with the financial uh, crisis of, of uh, about a decade ago. And um, so the company just went through a massive transformation. It was very interesting to be a part of that. What did you take away from your time at GE? You know, I think what I took away is the need to be very focused in a specific category. I think GE got very big and very diverse. And I think the challenge for it was that it was good at a lot of things, never great at a singular. And I think that companies need to develop a core strength within one category be very, very agile and very fast and be able to scale extraordinarily well within that, within that concept or platform. And I think for GE, my observation is it got very heavy. Uh, the corporate group uh, was, was very large. Uh, the, the organizational structures within each business unit made it very slow to move. And I think that as you look at businesses that start today, uh, they're almost the opposite of what GE became. And so I, I learned a lot, uh, good and bad, good from a process standpoint, learning how to make things as simple as possible from a large scale business perspective, yet 
there still is opportunity to be more lean, more agile, more focused on growth, more focused on being close to the customer. You know, I think as you think about my comment about GE being almost too big, at that same point, you lose proximity to the customer and you lose the ability to know who the customer really is. But I learned from GE is the closer you can get to the customer, the better. And so as you look at my career post GE, what you see is a transition to being a lot closer to the customer and looking for ways to understand customer needs, be in an organization where you can move faster and respond uh, to, to needs and changing market conditions in a much more rapid way. Why did you make the move to big OSFENS? For me, I had the chance to go to a company that was a fraction of the size of GE. Uh, so going from a hundred-plus billion-dollar organization to a $250 million organization, that in itself was significantly different. And then having the chance to go in and run the company uh, to help the founder of the company transition the company from a founder-led company through a sale process uh, was something that was very unique. I went into a very dynamic environment where the company had been growing extraordinarily fast, 30% year over year, uh, and had a founder who is a brilliant founder and built a solid business, but ultimately saw the value of the company as one being more valuable sold than, than, than kept uh, operating as it was. And so I was brought in to rethink the structure, to re, uh, reorganize and ultimately sell it. And we, we achieved that. So it was a very unique opportunity. Um, it was one that is, a, I think, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity where you get to go in, work side-by-side side, uh, with a founder, uh, run a, a very dynamic company, and then, and then sell it. I think it's, a, it's, it's something that I'll look back on and understand it was special and, and really appreciate the time doing it. And, and when I was at GE and had that opportunity, I think I recognized that uh, it was something special enough to, to leave GE uh, for. And a unique enough challenge. How did your time at Big Ass Fans inf influence you? The proximity to the customer is something that Big Ass Fans excelled at. If you look at Big Ass Fans, it sells large industrial and commercial fans throughout the world. It also sells residential fans. All of the business generally is done direct. And so what that means is General, uh, General Electric, as an example, is selling through distribution. The distribu distributor then sells to the customer. Big Ass Fans would sell directly to the customer. So uh, whereas my old company was selling through a distributor, then ultimately American Airlines, Big Ass Fans was selling directly to it. And what I saw was the power of understanding the needs and wants of the customer, the ability to react in ways that were so much faster than other businesses that were larger selling through distribution. So what I took away from Big Ass Fans is proximity is everything. Speed is everything. And it helped us reorganize the company uh, at record pace. It helped us uh, it, it sell the company for extraordinary value, and that was all because of proximity. And so what I took away is companies that are more valuable are closer to the customer. They understand the customer. They're able to see exactly what the customer needs and wants, and they're able to react to it. And so uh, it was something that leaving the company, I knew I wanted to start something that ultimately allowed for us uh, to be close to the customer and disrupt the market, just like Big Ass Fans did in its own way. What ignited the spark to start Truman's? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, such a, it's such a good question because I think as, as anyone who's been on the corporate side, 
of of the world would would understand leaving it is difficult and it's a huge step for for me what i saw in in the founder of big ass fans was this inspiration that you can do it you can build a company you can disrupt um and i was really inspired by that idea at the same point my co-founder and i observed a market that uh is and and was completely broken at the time we saw it was broken and today it still is broken it's extraordinarily messy and ironically it's the cleaning category and for us we looked at it and we said the brand structure is completely archaic it is not conducive to today's lifestyle in the US or globally. It is broken from the perspective that most brands throughout the world that sell spray cleaners are filling those cleaners with a small amount of formula, adding water and calling it a cleaner. And we think that that makes zero sense. We think that in today's world, brands should be as efficient as possible, as sustainable as possible, and really look for ways to make it so that the consumer is ultimately buying what they really want in the most sustainable way. Uh, and that's how we give them better value. So we saw this huge opportunity and what we looked to was a broken system where brands sit on the retail shelf. They sit on the retail shelf in the U S and, and as I said, they're 98% water. They're filled with toxic chemicals and colors to obviously inspire customers to buy them. And we think that there's a better way to do it. So rather than wait for other companies to come in and change it, and rather wait rather than wait for retailers to redesign the shelf, we said, let's do it ourselves. Let's take the principles that we've learned from our backgrounds and apply them to this company. And let's create a brand that represents what we think the category needs, which is something that's authentic, transparent, honest, and focused on delivering sustainable cleaning goods direct to consumer it eliminates friction with retail. It allows us to be close to the customer and offer them uh, really what they want. And so when, when we saw that there was such an opening and such a gap in the marketplace, it gave us the confidence to know that making this leap was something that is needed. And even if we fail, we'll be able to get companies to think in a different way. Even if Truman's is never the most successful cleaning company out there, what we want to do is lead the charge to do it in the right way. We want Truman's to stand up and say, there is a better way to deliver cleaning products. There is a better way to make cleaning products. And ultimately, there's better value for the consumer than how it's being offered today. And so Truman's really represents a lot. You know, Truman's represents a cleaner way to clean. It represents a philosophy of providing extraordinary customer service. And ultimately, we want to do it on a global scale. You know, we're starting in the US. Um, as you saw, we recently had an investment from a global company. And our expectation is that we can lead this charge globally and hopefully convert the industry. You know, as I said, my goal is not to have Truman's be the only cleaning brand in the world. My goal is to have the industry completely change and to look and see sustainable cleaners all over the world that were inspired by the push that Truman's gave. Do you have any stats around the scale of home cleaning waste globally? You know, I think that when you, when you look at the waste, it's hard to calculate it globally. But the one thing I can tell you in the U.S. is that it's extraordinary. And, and here's some, some concepts 
that lead to that. If you look at the average bottle that sits on the retail shelf today, the average spray bottle, it's about 100 grams of plastic. And that spray bottle on average is anywhere from 90 to 98% water. So in reality, what the consumer really needs is a small amount of formula in a small capsule. We clearly think that liquid-based concentrate works well, so I'm using that in this example. But if you were to buy the concentrate and add your own water, you would save anywhere from 80 to 90% plastic just off that mechanism. And that's assuming, by the way, that you're going to use plastic in your refill. If you use another material, you can eliminate plastic in general. But if you think about the concept of what I said, a cleaner could be 0.33 fluid ounces, and the consumer is actually buying a cleaner that's 27 fluid ounces, so virtually all water. One side of waste is material waste. Companies should not be shipping products anywhere in the world or in the U.S. that are plastic and filled with 98% water. From a material perspective, there's waste. The other thing I just said was shipping. It takes 30 trucks to move the same amount of product as one truck of concentrates. So if you think about a, a truck of concentrates being very, very small and the amount of cleaning supplies that could be made, you would need 30 trucks of ready-made product to equal that. So then you think about those 30 trucks and you think about the number of distribution centers and the number of warehouses, and you think about the impact on the supply chain, the amount of emissions that come out of that process, and you have to wonder why anyone, anyone would ever build a model like that. We would never today in 2019 say, let's build a company, let's add a little bit of cleaning solution, let's add a lot of bit of water, let's put it in this very large 100 gram plastic bottle and ship it from Los Angeles to New York. We would never do that. And so what we fundamentally believe is that there's a tremendous amount of waste on the material side. As I mentioned, uh, you know, if, if, if you do the rough math, you know, it's billions of pounds of plastic that, that is being wasted. There's waste on the supply chain side with emissions and the number of trucks on the road. And then unfortunately, one impact that doesn't get enough attention but is very real is the toxicity in the products and the impact on the, the waterways and the amount of waste that goes into the waterways. And so the cleaning category is a mess in the U.S. It's completely broken. And as I said, we're, we're here to fix it. And we're here to fix it in a way that is working. And we're here to expose some of the, the inefficiencies and, and some of the areas of waste today. I, I think you're your question is relevant in the U.S. I think it's relevant throughout the world. I think there are a lot of different product categories that we can look at and say, is there a better way of doing it? Is there a more sustainable way of doing it? How did you find the business? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think with, with any business that you start, uh, there's a leap of faith that occurs. And so for us, um, we had a partner very early on uh, who provided some capital and, and we provided uh, some capital into the business, and we wanted to see if the concept would work. And ultimately, um, we got it off the ground, and it worked extraordinarily well. And and I think that, you know, we we were very surprised by the initial 
feedback and, and reaction. When we announced what we were doing, we had a, a huge uh, support system that, that came out and said that they thought what, what we were working towards was inspiring. And, you know, that led to a successful launch of, of the company. And so we're lucky that, you know, we funded it in kind of a bootstrap way, uh, but it ended up working and it allowed us to get to a point where we could actually raise money. And, and it happened, I think, faster than we had anticipated. Uh, there was more inbound interest to, to raise uh, the recent round of capital that we did. And so, you know, ultimately we, we ended up restructuring the company and, and um, the initial partner we had uh, uh, took a buyout uh, in order to, to become a manufacturer of, of, of us uh, over the long term. And so it was a very interesting transition. Um, and I would say it was an unexpected one. And, and you know, here we are today uh, coming off of a very large initial uh, capital raise, formal capital raise for the company. Uh, led by Henkel, which is a just a phenomenal global organization. You know, we completed a $5 million raise for the company as our official seed round. And so, you know, if you look at that very first step of, of funding it in a way that uh, was very kind of bootstrapped and, and what you think of as almost like a minimum viable product to, to get the company off the ground and to see the interest, um, you know, turned into uh, you know, really something special and, and an investment round that was led by kind of a world-class organization and uh, a group of world-class investors who all represent, you know, something very unique and, and special in their own way. Brands can overcomplicate sustainability. What do you think is the key? The key to sustainability is accessibility. And I think the challenge for a lot of companies and the challenge for a lot of people is we expect to go from broken to fixed overnight and that's not going to happen and i think the the over complexity exists when companies try to become so sustainable that the product or service is no longer accessible to the customer and if it's no longer accessible to the customer then that idea of sustainability will never actually be achieved and i'll give you an example we use plastic in our product today now on the whole we reduce plastic consumption by 80% and we reduce the supply chain by more than 70% totally. So that's a significant reduction when you think of holistically about our business model. Yet we still use plastic. And there are some people who criticize us and say, look, it's great that you're reducing it by 80%, but you're still using plastic. Therefore, it's not a good product. Here's what I would say. We could overcomplicate the product. We could overcomplicate the sustainability aspects and variables within our business, make it extraordinarily sustainable. And unfortunately, the product will be three, four, five, or 10 times more expensive, less people will buy it, and we actually won't achieve as much of an impact as we can do today. So reducing plastic by 80% allows us to use plastic today as a first step solve the problem on a very large scale, take a tremendous amount of plastic out of the industry, simplify the supply chain greatly, and then in the next phase, we can become even more sustainable. And so I think what companies do is they try to solve too much too quick, and they try to make that leap too great. 
and they try to fix it overnight. And by doing that, they come up with a solution that either no one can afford or it doesn't meet the needs. So accessibility is all about creating a sustainable product that people can afford, creating a sustainable product that has the potential to change the way mainstream works. If you change the way mainstream products are bought and sold, then you can really make an impact. And so we're trying to simplify it. We're trying to make it as easy as possible to buy the product. We're trying to make it as affordable as, pro as possible, as accessible as possible, because ultimately what we know is that we can walk around every day and say we're going to save 80% of plastic, but if the entire market doesn't convert, we're never going to realize the opportunity. So I think companies need to really take a look at the steps towards sustainability. They need to figure out how to make it accessible first and then slowly move the market towards the optimal solution. How did you scale the business? Yeah, you know, I think I think scale is is something that is 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 challenging for all companies. You know, I think companies are good at growth. I think scale becomes harder. I think a lot of times we look at business and we say we can add five more people and we can grow in this way. Well, that's not scale. I think the idea of scale is how do you create all the great attributes of your company, keep them lean and be able to grow exponentially off of that base. So for us, the things we look at and the things that are important to us are the proximity to the customer. So I mentioned that learning from big ass fans, being close to the customer is absolutely important and absolutely critical. What we know is that customer service is everything to us. And so when we think about scale, what we know is we can't lose that customer touch point. We can't lose the ability to give an amazing customer experience, to be, for, to be there for the customer when they have a question, when they have a need around what is ultimately a very personal category. You know, cleaning is a category that is something that you use in your home, around your pets, your kids, your family, your loved ones. It's very personal. We know there are questions. So as we grow and we get larger, the idea of scaling in a way that keeps us human, approachable, transparent, all the attributes that have made us successful today, I think that's something that is important to us and how we think about having systems in place that allow for us to communicate rapidly with customers. You know, if you look at today, if someone tweets at me, I answer the tweet, every single one of them, whether it's positive or negative. You know, that, that's going to be hard to scale. But the principle of responding and the principle of responding in a human and authentic way is something that can scale. And uh, we're going to absolutely do it. Um, for us, the whole goal, as I said, is to convert the industry. So scaling is everything. And uh, over the next few years, what you'll see is us growing well beyond what you see today. You'll see us utilizing uh, advanced technology and ways to communicate with customers, whether it's via text or phone. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, we're going to flip the industry on its head and we're going to use the most efficient systems to help us do it. Can you tell me a story about your best and your worst day as an entrepreneur? Yeah, they're, they're pretty similar. You know, the, the, the best day for me was when we publicly announced the company. And I had the first person who I didn't know tell me they loved the company and they bought the product. I think that that was just extraordinary because, you know, you take a leap and you put yourself out there. We, my co-founder and I actually created the brand 
ourselves. We wrote virtually all of the copy ourselves. We wanted the brand to be an extension of who we are and represent what we believe in. And so for me, the, the best experience was kind of this person I didn't know telling me that they loved it and they loved everything about it and they bought the product. And that was this high that, you know, I had never experienced. You know, if you think back to that story I told of me as a child selling art to my family, you know, look, they were going to buy it, whether the art was not attractive or attractive, right? It, it was my family buying the art and they did it so I could buy the bike. Fast forward to when we launched Truman's, you don't know how the market is going to react. And so I think the, the, that that was amazing to have someone take the time to send me a note just saying, how much they love the product, they love the brand, they love everything about it. They're cheering for us, they're rooting for us, and, and they bought the product. I think my worst day um, was, you know, seeing that a customer was disappointed with the product for the first time. And, you know, I think it's the realization that no one is perfect, no brand is perfect. Um, we obviously work extraordinarily hard to, to make it right for the customer. I think as an entrepreneur, what I can tell you is I've never felt so guilty about people not liking a product. And, and it's, it's an amazing feeling. It, there's a, you know, I have kids and when I watch my kids play sports, I want them to do so well. And there's that love for them and the passion for them. In some ways, now that I've started this company, I feel that way about the company and I want everyone to love it and I want everyone to have a great experience. And so, I still remember that that first negative experience the customer had and, and it just, you know, it, it, it lives with me and it pushes me to do better. And so, you know, I think it's, 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 it's the good and the bad. It's, you know, hearing that somebody loves it and then hearing that someone doesn't love it so much. And I think that that's just the way life works. And, and, uh, um, but those are, those are kind of two defining days and, and high highs and low lows of, of being an entrepreneur. What drives you to keep going when things are really, really tough? You know, every day is, is hard. And I think, you know, just like you, we have everything going on in our world, whether it's school or family or uh, friends, you know, there's always something happening. You know, then you add something like Truman's into the mix uh, and it gets complex. You know, we're 24-7 business. We operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, there's always something to do, always something happening with the business. I, I think every day is a challenge. And as an individual, I think we all have days where we feel anxious. We all feel down. Um, I think it's breaking through that and just remembering that we're all people and we're all people trying to just do good in the world. And so for me, you know, when I have those down days and when I really feel like it's a challenge, I, I just get reminded that we're all in this together and we're all working to do good. And so, you know, there's always another day. And when days are challenging, it will get better. And so I remind myself that those days where I felt the high highs, they'll come back. And on those days where the low lows are happening, you just get through it. And, you know, there are times where you have to pause and, and go do something else. For me, it's sometimes cooking for stress relief or painting. But, you know, I think ultimately we just have to remind ourselves that everyone experiences anxiety and depression and low lows. And 
you just have to work through it. And even if you run a company, run a household, regardless, we all have equally hard days. What lesson in business has taken you the longest to learn? Yeah, I think the idea of diversity of thought and the power of it. Um, when oftentimes when individuals are young, and I, I, I talk to a lot of college students about this, you know, they tend to go work with people who think like them, look like them, you know, their friends play in the same sports teams. This concept of finding people who are not like you, who come from different backgrounds, um, who've lived life in a different way, those are people who contribute the most uh, to what you're working on. The idea of diversity of thought is something that I think has taken me a long time to appreciate and really understand the value of. And as I look at working groups today, what I try to do is surround myself with people who think in completely different ways. And the value of that is extraordinary because I think when we have people from diverse places who have experienced completely different things, when, when they come together, what you see is magic happen. And the idea of being inclusive to all people, regardless of where they come from, what they look like, what they believe in, getting people to come together uh, is extraordinary. And so in business, I think value is created when you embrace diversity of thought. I think it's something that I've learned later in my career. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's a, it's a lesson that hopefully more people can learn at a younger age. With everything happening in your world, how do you keep focus on the right things? I, I think for, for me, it's simplifying my day. You know, as, as items are related to Truman's, the number one thing that I focus on is making sure the customer's happy. And what we try to do is align all of our activities around that. You know, ultimately, if we're telling our story in the right way and, and customers are happy, then we're doing our job. So it's focusing on what ultimately matters. And, and for Truman's, it's all about the customer. It is about the person who ultimately uh, takes a leap of faith with us as a brand because they believe in us. They love what we represent and stand for. Uh, they're willing to share our story online. And, and we, we're so grateful for that support and so appreciative of the people who take the time to, to click buy and, and experience our product. And so every day we try to simplify the day. And the simplification is around making sure more people know about us and more people have an amazing experience with us. And hopefully we can touch more people every day and make more people smile every day as well. What do you expect to be the biggest change in your industry over the next few years? Yeah, I, I think what you'll see is a rapid change as it relates to supply chain. And I think that you'll see a extreme focus on sustainability. You know, the, the, category has been broken for so long and e-commerce uh, specifically in the U.S. is growing so rapidly that the idea of shipping a product, as I said, that is 98% water makes zero sense. And so you'll see significant advancements in supply chain. You'll see significant advancements in the sustainability variables. And I really do hope that the market shifts to more of a non-toxic offering. I think toxicity in cleaning products is very dangerous to individuals, both at the point of use as well as uh, the after use and the waterways. And so, you know, I think what you'll ultimately see is uh, cleaning become uh, much more sustainable. And I think that that will be a revolution that is needed. Who inspires you? 
You know, I'm inspired by a, a lot of people. I'll give I'll give an example of, of someone who recently I met and I'm just absolutely inspired by the work they're doing on a global scale. Her name's uh, Yanti Tarang. She founded a company called Learn to Live. The company does amazing work on a global scale. In fact, they're doing a tremendous, uh, tremendous amount of work in Indonesia to support uh, the health systems and education uh, programs and, and awareness around clean water and other programs related to public health. And why I'm inspired is this is an individual who came to the United States, studied to be a nurse, and took time to say, how can I take what I've learned and bring it back home and bring it back to an area that could really benefit from this knowledge? And so she's built a scalable solution and a nonprofit based in New Orleans, Louisiana, that is doing amazing things. And I'm, I'm absolutely inspired by how she's built an organization that is impacting people all over the world. And it's run extraordinarily well. And she's uh, done it in a way that it is well-funded, yet the dollar per impact is unlike anything I've ever seen. And so I'm, I'm really inspired by her. It's not a when I say well-funded, by the way, this isn't a million or $100 million budget organization. No, this is a $100,000 a year organization, nonprofit, very, very small. But when I say well-funded, the quality of donor is extraordinary and the impact is amazing. And I think that when we look at the impact that she's making, what we realize is that we can make a difference. An individual in the U.S., can go out and get $100,000 from donors and make an impact in, a, in an area that $100,000 goes an extraordinarily long way. And so it's, it's amazing to see. I, 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 as I said, was recently introduced to her and just completely blown away by the vision, the thoughtfulness, uh, her own transparency about what she's trying to solve for. So, you know, I've been lucky to meet some really amazing people. Um, She's kind of the latest on the list that just completely uh, inspire me. If you could go back in time, what advice would you give yourself? You know, I think if I were to think back to different phases of my life, there would certainly be different bits of, of advice. Um, you know, I, I really love the, the path that I've taken. I, I I think if I were to go back and, and talk to myself right when I was getting out of school, I, I think I would tell myself to be patient and to take time to enjoy where I was at at that point. I think I was always motivated to do really well and to work very, very fast. Looking back, I think the path has been extraordinary and the learning obviously built up to where I am today. And so I would kind of whisper in my ear back when I was in the 20s and, and say, look, you know, what you learn now is so valuable. Take time to understand that it will be valuable. And I wish that I, 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 I knew that back then because I know it now. I know how valuable it is. And so everything I learned today 
I know that ultimately over the next 10 years, over the next 20 years, it will all be built upon to do even greater things. And so, you know, I think it's something it's hard to realize early career, um, but it, it's certainly something that um, if, if I could kind of go back, uh, it'd, be, it'd be something that I certainly would want to uh, pace things a little bit slower. Okay, final question from me. What would you say to encourage the next generation of entrepreneurs? Yeah, you know, first of all, I, I want to say what, what you're doing is exceptional. And I think that Thanks. having discussions with people about business and creating genuine connections with people is so important. I think that when you think about the next wave of leaders, and I don't think we should separate business leaders from political leaders, let's just focus on leadership. Because whether you're a business leader or a political leader or a community leader, we're just simple people, normal people being leaders. And I think that what is so valuable is learning from others and sharing that message in a way that will inspire people. And I think the work you do is interesting and so compelling because people can learn a lot by listening to people meet, talk, and share what they've learned. And I think that ultimately, we can all learn amazing things from people who have done it. I think what we need to do is take time to understand what works, what doesn't work, constantly work to make it better. You know, I think as, as individuals, we need to constantly learn. We need to constantly put ourselves into situations where we're challenging ourselves. And I think that entrepreneurs need to think big. And I think that entrepreneurs need to look at categories and figure out ways to completely flip them on its head. And so I think ultimately the message for entrepreneurs is listen to as many programs that provide knowledge around what's working. Learn from people who go through the ups and downs and understand there are going to be the low lows and there are going to be the high highs. Accept the reality of the challenge. And have the confidence to know that you can do it. And I think understanding that you have the permission as an entrepreneur to change the world is the most critical leadership lesson that you can pass forward. I think that leadership is the permission to change the world. And I think we can do it as business leaders. I think we can do it as community leaders. I think we can do it as politicians. So I think I think the more that we can inspire people to change, the more that we can inspire people to do things in a better way, the better. And so, look, I appreciate what you're doing to help not only get the message of Truman's out there, but to hopefully inspire people to go and, and challenge something and to go and make something great. Thank you so much for your time, Jonathan. Thank you. This was incredibly awesome. And it was awesome to meet you. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed this interview, please leave me a comment down below and be sure to subscribe and share this podcast with your network. As always, stay awesome and share the love.